It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now, where do you think this is from? A great bath mat will brighten up a bathroom, keep your feet toasty, and perform the all-important job of protecting you from slipping on wet floors. After 30 hours of researching and testing dozens of rugs and mats, we've picked three that we love for their style, comfort, and functionality. There's also, after spending more than a thousand nights testing 119 pillows, we've got the pillow for you. It's the New York Times. Every day now, I go to the homepage, and when you scroll down, you find you know this uh, new feature, which is telling you like the best thing to buy for this sort of thing. It's just so untimes-like. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. I guess it's kind of like a consumer reports. It probably costs a great deal of money to have the analysts and experts going through all this stuff. It just doesn't feel like the gray lady. Now, this is like a replay of the 1970s when the New York Times was in real financial trouble. And Abe Rosenthal started these new sections, the style section, the food section. Uh, and, you know, traditionalists were appalled. Well, this is not what the paper of record should be about. It's not fit to print and so forth. And, of course, it was incredibly popular. It brought in a lot of new advertising and it saved the paper. So I don't have any moral objection to this. I just laugh that the New York Times is sitting there worrying about bathroom mats. Also in the news, Gawker is back. And I'm not that thrilled to hear that because I was glad that Gawker went away. Gawker was this gossip site that was incredibly mean-spirited, especially as time went on, um, you know, just ridiculing and trying to shame people, including people who, in in the pre-Twitter era, you know, were not big names. And it finally got basically sued out of existence, but um, the Bustle Group bought the name, and now it's back. I don't know that anybody really missed it. It feels like it was a product of its time. Now, there's an editor's note by the woman who was picked to run it, Leah Finnegan. Uh, She was asked to take this job. She said, I said, absolutely no way in hell. Who in God's name would want to edit a website that was cratered by an evil tech lord and sullied by a botched relaunch? But she goes on to say she got talked into it and... It's going to be a different tone. It's going to be more for the age of civility. We're here to make you laugh, think, do a spit take, maybe go, huh, or wow, or damn, or what the F, or I'm glad someone finally said it. Just from glancing at it, it seems more like a typical gossip site than the piece of junk that it was before. But if people like it, they'll click, right? Uh, Speaking of clicking, we all are doing a whole lot of clicking on uh, phones, on computers, on laptops on iPads, uh, study finds, says uh, there's a study uh, in Britain, a poll of 2,000 British adults, 73% can't even imagine going 24 hours without at least one screen to stare at. How glued are we to our devices? Uh, on average, the researchers say, person, at least in the UK, spend about six hours daily in front of screens. I, mean, I do that by lunchtime. Uh, but of course, I also use it for work. Our eyes are paying the price. Many told researchers they struggle just to keep their eyes open or they have dry eyes or whatever. Um, And obviously, more people working at home. I mean, just always on devices, on devices. And it's hard to have a dividing line between work and pleasure, you know. And as you finally finish working and looking at all these screens, dealing with your email, dealing with your texting, dealing with your Slack, and then you watch Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever. Okay, Um, this is a story that is one of those things to get you to click, but it turns out to be completely bogus. 
and not bogus in the sense of fabricated, but the Hill has a piece. Democrats are worried about Vice President Kamala Harris's low poll ratings. Like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see what it is. Okay, six months into office, polls show she is viewed less favorably than President Biden. And she's made a lot of mistakes and blah, blah, blah. But then the story itself says vice presidents don't usually outperform the person at the top of the ticket. And then you get to the numbers, according to the Real Clear Politics Average. Kamala Harris has a combined unfavorable rating of 46%. Biden's unfavorable rating in Real Clear, 43%. So it's just a 3% difference from the guy who she serves with. I mean, that's margin of error stuff. So, uh, you know, I don't understand why that warrants a story, but it is the end of July. All right. I'm going to lead off now, number one, with the story that I've kind of jokingly vowed not to talk about anymore because it's kind of like watching paint dry, but it's infrastructure. And let me just say, it may turn out, for all the times I've come on the podcast and says this thing's not going to pass, this thing's not going to pass, I may be wrong. And I would be delighted to be wrong if there actually is a bipartisan deal. It looks and smells like there might finally be, and uh, I've seen a lot of liberal news outlets, this is great, this is an absolute victory for President Biden, who after all ran on the very notion that he could reach across the aisle after 36 years as a senator and come up with some kind of bipartisan compromise. Now, I have two things to add about that. One is there's about 16 different ways in which this could still collapse, this being Congress. And number two is it's kind of not what it seems to be. But we'll get to that in a second. So, remember, um, Biden proposed, uh, originally he wanted to do a $2 trillion bill. He knocked it down to $1 trillion, And the Senate voted last night to take up, it's just one of these procedural votes, because the thing isn't even written yet, to clear the way for $1 trillion bipartisan bill. But the, the margin was impressive. 67 to 32. 17 Republicans voted in favor of this, it was pushed by the more centrist senators, relatively speaking, and Mitch McConnell is supporting it. Mitch McConnell, who Democrats deride as, you know, Dr. No, never wants to do a deal with anybody, doesn't want to give the administration victory, he's in favor of it. Well, you know, it turns out that infrastructure, roads, tunnels, bridges, waterworks, transit, broadband, is pretty popular stuff. And maybe the Republicans don't want to take the heat for killing it off. Um, the deal still faces several obstacles to becoming law, says the New York Times. First of all, there's no actual legislative text. So they're voting on, you know, vaporware at this point. So somebody's got to write this stuff. The vote was a victory for a president who has long promised to break through the partisan gridlock ripping Congress. And I don't disagree with that if it can be pulled off. But here's the thing. It's being touted as a trillion dollars. It's actually about $550 billion dollars in new spending for roads, bridges, and so forth. Um, that's not nothing. That's a lot of money. But it's about a quarter of what Biden originally wanted. But okay, as Biden says, and let me just read from his statement, the president says this is most, will be the most significant long-term investment in infrastructure in nearly a century. Neither side got everything they wanted in this deal. But that's what it means to compromise and forge consensus, the heart of democracy. Still plenty of work to do. There'll be disagreements. So, you know, he knows it's not a slam dunk. So this happened last night. And among the things Biden gave up are some climate change stuff, including money for electric vehicle charging stations for electric cars. Also, and this is where 
I'm really skeptical. You don't have that much new money. Again, you know, in Beltway terms, it's not that much. To the average person, $550 billion, over five years, of course, is a hell of a lot of money. But how is it going to be paid for? So no raising taxes on people making over 400000 The Republicans didn't want that. No raising taxes on corporations. The Republicans really didn't want that. And then the Biden compromise. Well, we'll just give the IRS more money and they magically will wave a wand and be able to recover a lot of money that uh, tax cheats or tax avoiders are not paying. That's out too. So how on earth are they going to pay for this? Well, it's, it's basically accounting gimmicks. It's smoke and mirrors. For example, uh, save $50 billion by delaying a Medicare rebate rule passed under Trump. Uh, raise $30 billion by applying tax information reporting requirements to cryptocurrency. Do you have any confidence that that actually is going to raise $30 billion? I don't. Uh, recoup $50 billion in fraudulently paid unemployment benefits, which would raise the question of why was this program so badly run that $50 billion uh, was paid out in jobless benefits that was not supposed to go to people? Um, so in other words, it's a patchwork of, you know, makeup stuff and maybe this will happen, wishful thinking. So that means basically it's not really paid for. Uh, so uh, even under the most optimistic interpretation, I'm going to spend $550 billion in new money because a lot, the rest of it is just other money that's already been passed. So it's just kind of a repackaging and rebranding and saying, aha, we have this great infrastructure compromise. Now I'm not against it. I hope it passes. Uh, I think, you know, if there's any issue on which both parties should be able to agree, any issue whatsoever, it should be infrastructure. Remember in the Trump administration, every week was going to be infrastructure week, and then it wasn't. Um, and so even if it's just kind of a lot of smoke and mirrors, there's still real money here. It would still, you know, create jobs to build these projects. Um, but the other problem the Dems are going to have is that the liberals don't like it, and uh, Nancy Pelosi has already said, unless we also get the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation one party only bill, I'm not putting this up for a vote. And it's got to pass both the House and the Senate. But the Senate has always been seen as the toughest obstacle. For example, Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio, chairman of the Transportation Committee. Uh, if it is what I think it is, I will be opposed. It looks like it's going to be status quo 1950s policy with a tiny little add-on. Uh, in the end, you know, remember, you, they've only got like a four-vote margin in the House, so Biden will have to put a lot of pressure on his own party. And here's another sign of the liberals not liking it. Kristen Sinema in the Senate is saying, well, she's not in favor of the $3.5 trillion Democratic-only bill, which is housing, health care, family stuff. Um, but it's not clear whether she'll oppose it. And AOC takes a shot at Sinema, Remember, they're both Democrats. Good luck tanking your own party's investment on childcare, climate action, and infrastructure while presuming you'll survive a three-vote House margin, especially after choosing to exclude members of color from negotiations and calling it a bipartisan accomplishment. So she plays the racial card there. Um, and one more thing. Guess who doesn't like this compromise? Donald Trump put out a statement saying under the weak leadership of Mitch McConnell, Senate Republicans continue to lose. He lost Arizona. He lost Georgia. Okay, I don't know that Mitch McConnell is to blame for those things. He ignored election fraud. 
and he doesn't fight. Now he's giving Democrats everything they want and getting nothing in return. No deal is better than a bad deal. Don't fight for special interests and radical Democrats. Rhinos are ruining America. So, you know, clearly Trump doesn't want this because Biden and McConnell will both be able to say, hey, we cut through the gridlock. We brought something home. It's tangible. It's going to be good for America. And Trump would rather not have that. Uh, and so he attacks McConnell, who he's mad at, you know, for many, many things, dating back to his own presidency and including McConnell's remarks after January 6th, blaming Trump for inciting what turned out to be the riot at the Capitol. A related story in the New York Times, interesting, um, the huge increase in government spending prompted by the pandemic has succeeded, according to a new analysis, in cutting poverty nearly in half this year, pushing the number of Americans in poverty to the lowest level on record. Uh, never, America has never cut so much poverty in such a short period of time. Uh, it has dropped across states, racial groups, age groups. But of course, that's what happens when you pump a trillion dollars into the economy. I mean, it is not exactly shocking that the United States of America, by spending a trillion dollars and giving a lot of money, you know, whether it's child tax care credit, pandemic aid, unemployment, special unemployment benefits, can actually cut the poverty rate. The problem is, it's temporary. All of these programs are going to expire because they were emergency aid under coronavirus legislation. Biden is already pushing to make the child tax credit permanent. I don't think he's going to have that much luck with that because, again, how do you pay for it? All these programs, nobody's raising taxes. All this, you know, vaporware about the IRS is going to crack down. They couldn't even get that. So it may just be a temporary development. But look, they interviewed people, single mothers and others who lost their jobs, were afraid of being homeless, and were helped. And that was the idea of legislation. I'm not against that. But again, it's not exactly rocket science that if you pump a lot of federal dollars into the economy, you will help a whole bunch of people. Not all of them poor, but a lot of them poor or near poverty. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Okay, number two. That uh, COVID rate keeps going up. It was 63,000 new cases the day before. Yesterday, it was 66,000 new cases. Just inching up by a few thousand every day. I want to see that trend end. There has been something of an increase in the vaccination rates. It's not dramatic, but it's a little bit encouraging. So the Washington Post, you know, pretty sympathetic to the Biden administration, has a piece saying having to do with the CDC and the new mask guidance, it basically says, where's the data? Um, the CDC is claiming that even vaccinated Americans should wear face masks. Um, and it includes people who's had their shots, even because of the, they could spread the Delta variant and all that. But the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention did not publish this new research. In the text of the updated masking guidance, the agency merely cited CDC COVID-19 response team unpublished data 2021. Some scientists from the outside have their own message, show us the data. And it is true. I mean, it is such a bad agency when it comes to communications. It is such a muddled message. And it's dramatically changed. Remember, the whole idea, get vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. You certainly don't have to wear a mask outside. Now, not so much. 
So it's a disincentive for people to get vaccinated, which is the most important thing, the most important challenge right now, in my view, facing the country. And they won't back it up. They're not being transparent. And the Washington Post is calling out the CDC. And the Washington Post is right. Here's a piece of National Review. CDC has decided that because of the risk to the unvaccinated, everyone, including the fully vaccinated, should mask up once again to stop the spread. Just like that, says the magazine, we're back to 2020. America's fighting over whether they need to wear one indoors, outdoors, and in schools, and policing each other when the masks slide under the noses. All to protect people who have been eligible to get vaccinated since mid-April, and who, in most cases, have deliberately chosen not to get the shot. Uh, NR goes on to say, we've seen a big push to get teenagers vaccinated, but when school starts in the fall, and I know from first-hand experience this is true, vaccination status won't make any difference. The CDC now recommends, and a lot of school districts are applying this, adopting this, universal indoor masking for all teachers, staff, students, and visitors, regardless of vaccination status. Now, how is that fair to our kids who have over 12 who have gotten the vaccines, who whose parents have arranged for them to get the vaccines? It looks a whole different situation under 12 because they're not eligible right now. I Hopefully they will become eligible. So NR concludes, at a time when CDC ostensibly wants to emphasize the benefits of getting vaccinated, the agency is declaring that the same rules apply to vaccinated and unvaccinated alike. There is little evidence that reinstating mask mandates will spur reluctant Americans to get vaccinated. There's a good chance it will backfire. And this is what I was saying yesterday. I've been saying this for a couple days now. It's totally going to backfire. It undermines the CDC's credibility. And most people aren't even going to listen to it. So I think it's a disaster all the way around. And not showing the data just kind of reinforces those who think that the CDC is doing an awful job. Number three... And speaking of masks, uh, you have what I can only, I have to use the technical term here, pissing match between Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy. These two do not seem to like each other. Uh, you know, we talk about the Senate and how difficult it is to get anything past the Senate because of the, in effect, requirement that for just about everything outside of the reconciliation, you got to get 60 votes. So the Senate is often gridlocked. But, you know, I got to say that Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and these various bipartisan gangs that try to reach compromise have at least conducted themselves with a certain degree of dignity. They fight. They're partisan. But in the House, not so much. So, first, Nancy Pelosi, she's getting into a car and she makes a comment to a reporter who asks about Kevin McCarthy imposing the mask mandate because Pelosi, in her capacity as speaker, has brought back the notion that everybody, while they're in the Capitol, every member has got to wear a mask, vaccinated or not. And Nancy Pelosi said of McCarthy, he's a moron. Now, that's the kind of thing that you or I might say in private, but not if you are the leader of the House of Representatives. So McCarthy comes back and says, well, if she's so smart, how is it she's saying that people who are fully vaccinated but don't support wearing a mask are morons? She wanted to say that the House should follow the science, Madam Speaker. You don't know the facts, nor the science. So let's talk about it. He gives this speech and he says, look, there's an 85% 
vaccination rate for members of Congress. And the CDC says, well, you only have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated if you're in a hot spot. And and that's the problem. What are the hot spots? But they put out this, you know, color-shaded map, and you can see that certain counties, certain cities, certain regions, it's, I don't know if it's red or whatever it is, but those are the hot spots. And McCarthy says, look, Congress is not a hotspot. We're 85% vaccinated. Well, the facts will tell us this isn't a hotspot. So the CDC recommendation doesn't apply to us. The administration and now the House has broken the country's trust. So a couple of things. First of all, what Kevin McCarthy didn't say is 100% of the congressional Democrats are vaccinated. So when he says 85%, that missing 15% is all on the GOP side. Uh, not that he can wave a wand and get them all vaccinated, but it's his members. I think there's about 65 of them, uh, or maybe both sides, that haven't been vaccinated. And he says, why isn't the Senate doing this? Suddenly you walk from the House side of the chamber to the Senate side of the chamber, and it's okay not to wear a mask? Well, that's a fair point. But Tim Ryan, Democratic Congressman of Ohio, who's running for the Senate, took to the floor and ripped McCarthy Uh, over his comments. And he said, look, it's the Capitol physician uh, who is offering this advice. Not advice, he's saying we have to bring back the mask mandate. And he says the following, look, here within under the dome or in our offices, we may not be certainly a hotspot. But when we come to the chamber, we're 435 people. And it was, it's terrible having to put this back on. And we do it because the top doctor asked us to. But then he says, look, I, being from Ohio, may not be from a hotspot. Somebody from this chamber is coming from a hotspot. So he's saying, look, we represent the whole country. We're traveling back and forth. So it's impossible to say that this little zone, the campus that Capitol Hill is on, is immune because we're all coming back from various states, cities, and counties. Some of them may be hotspots, some of them may not be hotspots. He goes on just for good measure to say McCarthy was immature and his remarks were beneath a leader of Congress. They are cheap political points. So that's, ladies and gentlemen, your elected representatives at work. Number four, the Washington Post has a piece more about the final days of the Donald Trump administration. President Trump was calling his acting attorney general, that was uh, Jeffrey Rosen, who took over when Bill Barr quit, nearly every day to alert him to claims of voter fraud or improper vote counts in the 2020 election. Now, it's based on sources, but the sources are also saying this is in the handwritten notes of a top aide to former acting AG Rosen. Now, Rosen did tell Congress that he didn't do the things that Trump had demanded or that Trump supporters were demanding. And that's true, and that's to his credit. During my tenure, no special prosecutors were appointed, whether for election fraud or otherwise. No public statements were made questioning the election. No letters were sent to state officials seeking to overturn the election results. No DOG court actions or filings were submitted seeking to overturn the election results. So basically, Rosen can say nothing happened. And this may well come to the forefront because uh, the new mostly Democratic House January 6th committee has made it clear they're going to call a bunch of former Trump officials, and I'm sure Jeffrey Rosen will be on the list. Also, uh, Mark Meadows, then the White House Chief of Staff, was forwarding to DOJ potential claims of voter fraud. He says, his defenders say, well, he was just letting the department know about possible instances of illegality. So I got to tell you, 
as a, as a reporter who has covered the Justice Department, how incredibly unusual it is for a president to be saying to the Justice Department, not, you know, hey, I think you want to make a priority of this general area, whether it's crackdown on immigration, illegal immigration, crackdown on illegal drugs. You know, presidents have the power, the authority, and indeed the responsibility to set broad priorities for the Department of Justice. But when you're referring specific allegations about criminal behavior, that's something that presidents don't usually do. They take a hands-off approach so that it doesn't seem like justice is being tampered with. And when a president is sending along and calling almost every day as acting attorney general to pass along allegations, suggestions, and obviously the DOJ under Barr didn't find any widespread election fraud. But when he's passing on allegations that have to do with the central question of whether he can remain in office, under what standard is that not politicizing law enforcement? Uh, so that's why this is important, even though it's a more incremental story that adds to what we have already known about those final weeks. And finally, number five, going back to the office. A piece in The Atlantic by a guy named Ed Zitron, who it turns out has his own remote company and is kind of an evangelist for remote work. But nevertheless, you know, a lot of companies are supposed to go back or we're going to go back in September. By the way, that's now not applying to uh, Facebook, I think Google. Uh, a lot are now delaying this because of the resurgence of the Delta variant. But he writes in The Atlantic, some of the people loudly calling for a return to the office are not the same people who will actually be returning. The old guard members feel heightened anxiety over the white-collar empires they have built, including the square footage of real estate they've leased and the number of people they've hired. Um, so, remote work, he argues, lays bare many brutal inefficiencies and problems that executives don't want to deal with because they reflect poorly on leaders and those they've hired. Remote work empowers those who produce and disempowers those who've succeeded by being excellent diplomats and poor workers. In other words, people are good at playing office politics. It removes the ability to seem productive by sitting at your desk looking stressed or always being on the phone and also may reveal how many bosses and managers simply don't contribute to the bottom line. So this guy says, look, uh, well, I had a company that deals with tech and media and PR. I had an office, but basically I got rid of it because it was really just a place to meet before going out for drinks. But for the tens of millions, he says, who spend most of our days sitting at a computer, the pandemic proved remote work is just work. Every company that didn't require somebody to physically do something in a specific place was forced to become efficient, more efficient, based on cloud-based production tools. Now, he obviously admits that there are a whole lot of people who have to show up. Healthcare workers, retail workers, casino workers. He lives in Las Vegas. And he's not talking about them. He's talking about, you know, basically white-collar work. And he says, you know, basically... There's an office culture which is largely based on either the HR handbook uh, or just the fact that we're all in the same physical space. We're all evaluated sometimes, not on our execution, but on our diplomacy. Our ability to kiss up to the right people rather than actually being a decent person. I've known so many in my industry and others who have built careers on playing nice rather than producing something. Now, there's a part 
here that I just have to vehemently disagree with. He just kind of dismisses the notion of productivity based on the fact that people are surrounded by other people and that is good because they exchange ideas and they collaborate and things like that. To him, that's just a footnote. To me, maybe being in the business of journalism as I am, I don't think it's theoretical at all. I mean, sure, there's a lot of people, you any office you've ever worked in, it doesn't have to be in media or tech, where a lot of people sit around and don't do very much, they go out for a two-hour lunch, and then they do a lot of make work. But there really is something to passing somebody in the hall who maybe is a different part of a business than you're in, who says, hey, you know, I saw something on TV and you might want to look into this. Or, hey, I saw that memo and I have an idea. Um, also, being together, sometimes meetings go on and on and they are boring and a waste of time. I'm not a huge fan of meetings, but sometimes they produce good ideas, a bit of a synthesis, a synergy is the word I'm looking for, from people kind of bouncing things off one another. I really miss that. And, you know, eventually, if everybody's just remote all the time, I mean, you don't have the personal relationships because new people are hired, the old people leave, and they just know each other, what, from Zoom calls? I don't think that's a, a, a substitute. Now, I do think we may be moving toward a more hybrid situation where maybe you go in two or three days a week, and the other days you can be equally productive working at home. But I do think a lot would be lost. Um, I don't say this because, you know, I care about the real estate leases or anything else. A lot would be lost if everything is remote, everybody's just in their own silos, Everybody's a little tiny profile on a screen with a fake background. Um, there is something to be gained by actually interacting with other human beings. I shouldn't have had to say that. But there are absolutely some advantages, as we learned during the pandemic, such as not sitting in your car for an hour and a half a day. But some people maybe think that's a break from constantly being on call at home. I'd love to know what you think about this. Wish you could just open the phone lines here. But you can leave us a comment on Apple iTunes or on the Oval All podcast. You can also subscribe on your Amazon device or on Amazon Music or on Google Podcasts or foxnewspodcast.com. Hey, we're back here tomorrow with more Buzz News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.